There are so many things that impact our ability to achieve success, but none are more important than leadership. Individuals, organizations, and communities rise and fall with leadership. We are here to help you rise. Thank you for joining us. This is the Leadership Excellence Podcast. Hello, leaders, and welcome to Leadership Excellence. My name is Danny Langloss. Welcome back to season three. Today, we're going to be breaking down the psychological safety playbook. Two top experts, not just in the country, in the world, coming to us from Germany, Carolyn Helbig, and then coming to us from California, United States is Manette Norman. I couldn't be more excited to be here today. What I'm going to tell you about this book is if you're like me, like I have high level ADHD and there's a lot of books I want to read. I get into it, you know, pages and pages. It's good. I highlight, I do all that. This book was like written for people who have ADHD. It is so it's given me different ideas on how to write my book that I'm currently working on. There, there's so many different images, graphics, sketches. It's broken down. There's takeaways. I mean, it is so easy to flip through. I, I didn't, I'll, I'll admit, I haven't been able to read every single word in this book, but I've gone through and broken down the five key components that they've identified in the psychological safety playbook. And it was so easy to do. And the best part is like, I don't even have to read it all in order. I can go to the part that I'm interested in and get actionable takeaways immediately that I can start working on. I have seen nothing like this. Carolyn and Manette, welcome to the Leadership Excellence Podcast. Oh, I'm Thank so glad you. to be here. Thank you, Denny. So one thing that's interesting to me as I've hopped on and got to know Carolyn and Manette is they have never met in person yet. They wrote a book together. Manette, could you start? How did you meet Carolyn? How did this start to go? And then Carolyn, could you build on that? Happy to start. And yes, we met in 2021 in a class, a virtual class we were taking. We were getting a certification to run psychological safety assessments. So in this class, both of us really hoped that one of the things we would take away is what do you do once you've done the assessment and then you want to help teams increase psychological safety? And we found out that's not what we were getting in the class. We were learning really how to do the assessments and, and hold a discussion afterwards. And one of the students in the class had his own podcast on leadership, and he invited me on. And I was talking about my thoughts on leadership, inclusive leadership, psychological safety. And I said on that podcast, there's really a gap in the information that's practical for implementing psychological safety. There's a lot of academic information. There's a lot of the why, but we don't have the how-to. So Caroline, uh, who was in Germany preparing dinner for her family, happened to tune into the podcast when I was talking about this, and I'm just going to let her pick up the story from there. Yeah, and I can remember very well standing in my kitchen preparing dinner, and I hardly could finish cooking because I always have, had to stop and really taking notes because what Minette shared was actually exactly the way what we are sharing in the book. Tiny, tangible, very concrete things you can do. And I loved it. And I was inspired to reach out to her um, via email subject line crazy idea and the crazy idea I suggested was to put together our experience our brains our hearts and create exactly the material we were missing material that would be supportive for our clients to really implement the psychological safety ideas and concepts they are all now convinced of because of the stuff 
which is around and the discussion which is going on. However, this lack of the how-to, and first of all, we didn't, I didn't reach out saying, let's, let's write a book. I reached out saying, let's write something, create something, a booklet I, I was mentioning, maybe what, what we could give away or for free download for our clients. We really wanted to create something to help the clients we worked with. That was the idea. And at some point it turned into something bigger. And now we ended up having a book. Wow. That is a powerful story. That is exciting. And so you guys worked, um, presumably used Zoom or, or some type of video and communicated back and forth and uh, presumably both took just different parts of the book and then kind of help wordsmith and bring things in. Tell me about that just a little bit. Yeah. yeah. Um, oh, <laughs> this, yeah, is one of our, this is one of our challenges. We both jump in at the same time. So um, who's going to go first? Yeah, go ahead, Minette. Okay. Um, what I was going to say is, yes, we use Zoom. So we always saw each other on video. But the first thing that Caroline did, which was something I hadn't thought of and has been one of the key, most key tools we've used, is she set up an online whiteboard for us using a tool called Miro. There are many of these, but we were using Miro. And basically she set it up. It was a blank whiteboard with the title Crazy Idea at the top. And that's where we brainstormed everything we were going to do together. And we still use that whiteboard. It's now almost two years later. We still use it because we're doing you know, new materials and new engagements and figuring out what to do with clients. But it was really Zoom, the whiteboard, and you know, shared Word docs with track, track changes. And I will say, and I'll let Caroline continue, this has been a completely... 50-50 collaboration in that we we each wrote 50% of the book. I took on a little bit of the editing role just because I'm the native English speaker and we tried to harmonize the language so it sounded like it came from the same person and not two authors. But what I am really, really bad at is anything visual. And Caroline, I'll let, I'll let you talk about like the illustrations and how that all came to be. Yeah, yeah. And, and that's really the beauty of our collaboration. It's really something, I mean, this is really a great message in, in the world we are living in now where many people suffer from feeling distant and separated and so on. So what we experienced is really, we developed a deep trust-based relationship, a friendship, mm -hmm. <laughs> um, really across across um, continents. And um, what is also wonderful is that our skills complement each other. So um, Minette um, polishing the language and I doing, for example, the little drawings. And this was also a learning journey. So um, from the beginning on, we wanted to have something visual in it. First of all, we thought of maybe having having different frameworks or maybe using external sources and so on. At some point, we thought, oh, it would be nicer to have something more consistent. And I, I, I did rough sketches of what we envisioned. And still, we were not thinking of let's do it on our own. But at some point, we thought, oh, that would be such an unproductive back and forth, hiring someone external, and we can't really bring across what we exactly want to convey, right? And it was a wonderful process with the designer from our um, publisher, um, really ev evolving <laughs> from rough sketches to what you find in the book now. And I'm really pleased that readers like you, others, what we see on, on, on Amazon, they really value 
the visuals because it helps bringing the message across and it um, helps that the messages stick. So, and they also live, add a little bit of humor and humanity to the book. And that's also something which is important for us. Psychological safety can really be kind of a hard topic, right? A lot of weight, it feels heavy and so on. And we want to add a little bit lightheartedness and and um, make it easy and, and also fun to, to um yeah, to think about this topic. Yeah, well, the visuals really drove it home. They took uh, concepts that I thought you broke down very well and just made them easier and simpler and, you know, really just visually dove that in. I think when you hit it from those different sides, it's it's just a phenomenal job. And I really, really have enjoyed this book, and which really is a playbook. It, it's a book, but it's really a playbook. So, um, Manette, would you mind... Um, listing out the the five critical components of psychological safety that you guys have identified, and then maybe uh, we'll take a dive and kind of go back and forth into those components. Yeah, I'm happy to do that. And I, I will just say just from maybe a context setting, when Caroline and I were brainstorming this book, we, we thought of like everything we could possibly include. And we really did want it to be as short as possible and still be useful and as modular as possible. And that's why we came up with this idea of plays, you know, taking the idea of a sports play, which is, it just stands alone. It might sit in a binder, but it stands alone and you can pull out that one play and use that today in this moment because it's useful. And that was the same metaphor we were using in the book. So we divided it into what we call five plays, which you could think of as chapters. And then within the five plays, there are five Five moves each. So they're so basically 25 actions that you can take. And we explain why to use them and how to use them. So I'll, I'll tell you what the five are that we came up with. And I will also say that these are not the only five in the world. These are the ones we picked for this version of the playbook. And there may be iterations, there may be new editions that come out. So our top five for the book that exists today, number one is communicate courageously. I'll just list them and we can dive into any of them in more detail. The second one is master the art of listening. The third is manage your reactions. The fourth is embrace risk and failure. And the fifth is design inclusive rituals. And we could talk for hours about any of them. So we'll have to pick where we want to go next. <laughs> Absolutely. And I appreciate that. And for the listeners, get an idea what those five are. And then we'll kind of dive into a couple of them. This episode is going to last between 45 and 55 minutes. Um, and so we'll do our best to get into there. But, you know, the, the big thing is um, really going through and being able to take time to work through each of them like after you hear some of this and really using the book and the podcast and and uh, together cohesively to to really see that change we're trying to see. So I think, you know, number one is is number one for a reason. Communicate courageously so hard for people to do. Why is it so hard to communicate courageously? Yeah, it's, it's, it's really not easy because, because of a couple of reasons. One reason is that we all have brains, right? We all have brains in our head. And what is the brain telling us? It's telling us not to take risks because the, the key purpose of our brain is to keep us safe, right? It's survival. It's not being creative and innovative, trying new things. What we are optimized for, our brain is optimized for ensuring our survival. So we are all kind of 
um, uh, um, hiding away, uh, shying away from any risks. And we have to overcome kind of this risk aversion. For example, opening up. Interpersonal risk-taking is also something um, very crucial. So if you um, open up and, and speak courageously, this means you make yourself vulnerable to others and you take the risk of being kind of hurt. And you take this risk without the guarantee that nothing happens. So it's it's um, really this first step. And leaders are especially... Um, in, in a way, especially risk averse, because there's this traditional leadership model of you have to be, you have to be perfect, you have to know it all, you have kind of, um, yeah, you are not a human being, you're kind of um, someone who can't, uh, um, who can't be um, attacked, for example, without failure. And as a leader, for example, to um, step ahead and, and let me share maybe the first, very first move in um, um, communicate courageously so that it's a little bit more tangible. As a leader, to ask, for example, the question, what am I missing? Is something which is not the usual way leaders act because it shows to others, ah, this is a person who doesn't know it all. So we really invite leaders to um, be more um, yeah, to be more open um, and show others that you don't have all the answers and that you're um, aware of that what you see might not be all there is, that what you see is not the truth and you need other people to complement and to add their perspectives, ideas and so on to really come to a better picture of the whole situation. However, I have never experienced a leader asking this question. And I'm really pleased. I, just last week, I had a discussion with someone from HR here in Germany, a big automotive um, company. And he just shared the, as kind of an inofficial pilot this very first move. And he was blown away by the feedback he got because suddenly meetings, which used to be very unproductive and um, or in a way unproductive and people, not all people contributing, suddenly changed the, char the character and the nature and everyone felt invited to contribute. Mm -hmm. So just this little move, what am I missing? And of course, this needs to be rooted in a deeper attitude and mindset of, yeah, I'm, I'm more humble. I'm humble enough to see what I'm seeing is not the whole picture. And I'm willing to listening. So it's, it might sound small, but it's really more because it's um, rooted in a kind of mindset shift for many leaders. I think it's a brilliant question because, you know, one mm -hmm. of the things and the top things is we lay out psychological safety and the work I do with PTSD and the police and why police don't come forward when they're struggling is that leaders don't come across as human. They try to come across as gods. And a couple of important lessons I've learned along the way that you've really highlighted here is that leaders don't have to know everything and leaders don't always have to be right. We just got to get it right. And so when we're intentional about inviting other people into the conversation. We say, to, we say, I see you, I hear you, you're, you're valued. I appreciate you. This is a place that you belong. And I think that's so, so important. A couple of things I wrote down as takeaways 
because I thought you did a good job of, of listing this question and, and pulling away from it is one, invite others' viewpoints. That's what you do. What am I missing? You're inviting their viewpoint. Um, us personally being courageous enough to be honest about how we feel, what emotions we're experiencing as leaders, whether that be fear or excitement, whether that be worry or joy, um, and the ability to let go of being right and to have humor and this whole idea of being human. So Manette, I'll, I'll switch to you to finish up this section, if that's okay. The other question I really liked is a leader who's facilitating a conversation says, okay, that's one viewpoint. Let's hear a dissenting viewpoint. Why is that important? It's, it's really important. And again, just as Carleen said, it's rare to hear someone in a leadership position say, what am I missing? We don't see people actively asking or mining for dissent in business as often as they should. And why is it so important? Well, first of all, we as humans are really drawn to conformity. It's much more comfortable in a group setting to agree with everyone else and not to stand out. And unless you feel that it is truly safe and you're invited to dissent, you're probably going to hold back. You're pro I mean, I certainly was in positions in meetings in companies I've been a part of where I didn't agree, but I didn't feel that my voice was really welcome. I would have had a very different attitude if the leader of the group had said, okay, we're converging all on this one viewpoint. Who in the group is seeing it differently? Who dissents? I really want to hear dissent. I would have, I would have raised my hand and said, look, I'm looking at it a different way but it's not invited. And so we fear that we will be excluded. We will be marginalized. We will be embarrassed. We will be ignored. We will be interrupted and just, you know, have disdain if we are that dissenting viewpoint. So because it is not the norm, it is not common, uh, you really have to establish the conditions for that to happen. And then maybe if you've, if you know, you've asked many times now, who dissents, who has a different viewpoint, and people get used to it, it can become the new culture, it can become the new group norm, but it doesn't happen automatically. Automatically, we're trying to stay safe, you know, the brain again, if we offer a dissenting viewpoint, and people get defensive, they might lash out at us, they make might make us feel stupid. And we all go into that really defensive mode where we're not at our best. And so we have to set up the conditions where dissent is welcome, possible and really, you know, embraced. It is. I interviewed uh, Tony Mackey. He was from the Australian um, National Army and or sorry, regular army. And he talked about the expectation of dissent, the expectation that if you disagree, if you see us walking towards a landmine, um, if you have a, an idea that you think might push us forward, the expectation is that you and we all share those ideas, that we do that proactively. And I think that does tie into your number five, design inclusive rituals, which we'll try to dive into a little bit later. But when this just becomes who we are and what happens every day, then it becomes who we are and it happens every day. So I want to take and, and step into, and we can come back to different things as well. We can keep it just free flowing. And, and this time, Annette, maybe I'll start with you. Master the art of listening. And so when I looked in that, I saw curiosity, empathy, and humility. And since we hadn't met before today, I believe to my core, empathy is the heartbeat of leadership. It is the great human connector. And actually, it, it, it's part of the uh, behavior change model, the FBI hostage negotiations, and empathy, rapport, influence is all fueled by this skill of active listening. 
So in your book, you say listening's an art. Probably it's probably the most undeveloped leadership skill. Why do you say that, and what do you see there? I just want to say that we are we are also aligned on empathy. Like empathy underlines everything that we believe and we write about and the work that we do too. So we're on the same page with you there. And why we say that that listening is an underdeveloped and underappreciated skill is that I think a lot of people, not just leaders, but people think, of course, we know how to listen. It's just an innate human skill. And so we don't actually invest in skill building around listening. But what happens all too often, we have done it ourselves and we've witnessed it is either you're getting distracted and you're not really listening, or really commonly what happens is that you start to listen, like I hear the first thing you say, Danny, and I'm already off preparing my response. I'm not truly staying with you and staying curious to hear and understand every word because I'm busy thinking about how I'm going to respond to you. And the minute I start doing that, the second I start doing that, I really have stopped listening to you. And I may then have a response to something completely wrong because I didn't hear what you said. And so we we truly believe that you have to get wildly curious, uh, more curious than you've maybe ever been to understand the other person. And that may be, you know, we've, we've probably, some of us have taken those classes where you learn to paraphrase and check for understanding. You know, I hear you saying, is that right? And, and some people don't like that, but so you can find the language that you like, but the most important thing is to truly understand before you respond, before you offer your own viewpoint. And that just establishes you know, this empathetic environment that I care about what you have to say. I see you as a human being. I value you. And I may have a different perspective. I don't have to agree with you to listen to you fully. And so I think this is one of the other things that we mentioned in the book is that there may be a little bit of fear that if I listen so thoroughly and truly understand you, that then I'm going to change my mind or I'm weak as a leader and I'm influenced by you. So just a couple of things I want to say about that is one, you don't have to agree with the other person to understand them. And second, it might be actually very strong of you if you can change your mind, not in every case, but if by truly listening to someone, your mind is changed and your perspective is changed, that is a strength, not a weakness. And I will, you know, this is not anything in our book, but something I'll share with you. I was once given a piece of feedback by a leader. I was fairly junior in my management career. And he said, he gave me a piece of feedback and he said, you know, I saw you change your mind about something when you got new information. That's actually a very, that's weak of you. You need to just stick with something. And, you know, you made the decision, stick with it. And I, you know, for a while, I kind of took that to heart and I realized that was a terrible piece of advice. That was a terrible piece of advice because I got new information. It changed my mind. It informed me of something I should do differently. So I hope leaders can see that they don't have to rigidly stick to something and instead can listen with an open mind. And then maybe it changes their mind. Maybe it doesn't, but at least you've understood the other person. So that's, I kind of went down a little bit of a rabbit hole there, but it's just so important. It it is just so important, this idea that changing our mind, being curious, you know, leaders are so quick to judge because they feel like they got to be right. They feel like they got to be strong. They feel like they got to know all the answers. And all they do is they take it from a team where people can communicate courageously, right? Where people value other people and are inclusive and it just shuts everything down. It just becomes all about 
one person. And I mean, you, you can't even serve on our leadership team unless you can remain curious, unless you can be open-minded to change your mind. Because at the point you got information that would have saved us all this time and all this money or provided a better service, and you chose not to because you were stubborn and thought you knew everything, is the time that you just got to step aside. Um, you know, and I'm glad early on you realized that advice was not was not great. So, uh, Carolyn, it, do you want to build on the master mastering the art of listening and talk about some other strategies that are important to be a good listener? Yeah, absolutely. And <clears throat> maybe um, I'm exploring a little bit more why it's so hard for us to listening. It's linked to what Minette just shared. Um, that understanding is not agreeing. And somehow we tend to mix this um, these two things. And that's one of the reasons why it's hard for us to listen, because um, we think we then have to let go of our own um, perspective and adopt the perspective of the other person. And this having really this clearly separated in mind is very crucial for us to kind of um, allow yourself to understand the other person fully and you always can come back to your perspective, right? So have, having this clearly in mind is really crucial. And um, and then um, maybe also, this is maybe then a little bit linked to, to the next big chapter, managing your reactions, because when you're listening fully and truly, sometimes what's happening is you are hearing something which is triggering you, right? Which is um, um, you're having reactions, you're having emotions and so on. So how do you deal with those? And we have a whole chapter around managing your reactions, which is closely linked to, to being a good listener because you have to manage your reactions skillfully to still be with the other person and still be open and curious. And curiosity, we mentioned it a couple of times, is really kind of a superpower for leaders because it's really the antidote of this arrogant need of being right for example this not being open to other perspectives so curiosity as a superpower and managing your reactions being self-aware and see when a trigger is about to happen and then taking um, actions for yourself not to be triggered into an automatic reaction. It, it is a lot of deliberate practice, what we suggest. So uh, basically all the five areas are really something which is not happening automatically. It's something which you have to commit to, which you have to practice, where you really need to be, to yeah, to really be deliberate and, and choose your what you're doing. Absolutely. One of the things and that I think ties into number three, managing your emotions is understanding the energy in the room, the energy from the other person and, and diving deeper from the words they're saying to the meaning. When we think of empathy, I look at empathy as being able to see through the eyes and feel through the heart of another person, right? It's like being able to look at things from their perspective. And it's, it is so, so important because I hear people make statements and use words, but the ability for us as, as listeners, as leaders and active listening to take what that statement is and to be able to translate that into what they really mean and what emotions driving that and what's fueling that 
is huge because a lot of times people have difficulty taking the emotion or what's really bothering them and putting that to words and communicating it effectively. And when we're able to see and hear that, and if we are, you know, presenting back to them, when I hear you say this, I hear this, or I feel that them being able to get that shifted right from their fight, flight, or freeze in their amygdala to the prefrontal cortex is, is huge. And so this whole idea and concept to listen for meaning um, and not just words is is so, so big. Minette, do you want to build on that concept quick before we transition to manage your emotions? Yeah, I, I think it's really important because, you know, sometimes we're right and sometimes we're wrong, too, about what the other person is, is, is experiencing. So we really want to encourage you to not only to listen for what's the underlying emotion, but to check with the other person. Like, I, I sense that you're frustrated. Is that right? Or is there something else going on? You may, you may miss it, right? It may, like, I've noticed this with people that I've managed is sometimes I, I'm spot on and I sense that like they're feeling undervalued. They're not feeling listened to, or sometimes it's something totally different. So when you check, you, first of all, you're acknowledging the other person and their humanity. I see you, I hear you. And then that gives the other person a chance to clarify because so much like we have to check our assumptions about everything, not only the words that we're hearing, if we actually are understanding their meaning, but the emotions and feelings behind them. And so why not be explicit and say, I think you might be angry with me. Is that right? Like, I want, I really want to fix this if that's true and be able to talk about those things. And one of the things we think is important is to talk about emotion. And as a leader, we, we, again, back to Carlene's first point that you have to have this perfection and this strength as a leader. Well, we think acknowledging that you have emotions, we all have emotions, talking about them is important because it acknowledges I have emotions, you have emotions. These are not things we leave at the door when we come to work. And so let's get more skillful in dealing with them, managing our reactions and being able to talk about them in a productive way. Ashley, one of my uh, friends, so everything I'm, I'm, not everything, a lot of what I'm hearing in this about listening is this ability to remain curious. My good friend, Jean-Marie DiGovanna, um made this statement and one of her trainings I had our team attend and I was sitting there with the team. Um, she said, curiosity and judgment cannot exist in the same space. And that is so huge. And I think so much about leadership is about being intentional and being intentional because we care. We care about our team members. You know, we care about our, our leadership uh, and those communicate. We care about our customer. We care about our organization. And so this idea of be curious, not judgmental, takes us to a whole nother level and the ability and the ability to listen. I love this clarification piece because somebody might not be feeling undervalued. Maybe they're carrying a charge from a conversation we had three weeks ago and they didn't like the way we talked to them or the energy we shared with them in front of another team member, right? So what I have found is, is that experience and wisdom are incredible, but experience and wisdom without considering bias that enters our lives each and every single day is so damaging and detrimental. And that's why the first 10 words out of somebody else's mouth, by then we are already finishing their sentence. We already think we know where they're going. We're already looking to respond and it's just dangerous. And it's a lot of where these issues come from. The only other thing I want to add from my perspective is like, we think words are simple and we think people get and understand them and seriously define culture. Let's get an agreement and let's all define culture in the same way. Define race, define ethnicity, right? Define psychological safety. I think there's Amy Edmondson's definition, but we've got to establish not only we got to establish what these words mean 
And we miss each other so much because you mean one thing, you mean another thing, and I mean something else, and it creates issues and problems. So this clarification is so, so important. So uh, I think we're back to Manette uh, to start this one. Obviously, high emotional intelligence is key to managing your reactions and emotions. But when somebody makes you mad, when your heart starts to race, when your blood starts to boil, when you feel frustrated, what are some ways you can manage your emotion? What are some key factors to that? Yeah, and this is this is when I honestly have learned the hard way because I wasn't always aware of what was going on. And instead, you know, I did automatically react and that would often be lashing out at someone when and then regretting it. And so the first step is recognizing it. And that again, it comes back to this brave self-awareness what are those things when my heartbeat races or my face feels red, I'm getting defensive. And so knowing that that is the case, choosing how you're going to react instead of just, you know, not taking that breath. And so the recommendation that I put into practice every day for honestly is pause. You know, when I'm feeling triggered, any little thing that triggers me, whether it's something my husband did or Caroline sending me an email I don't agree with is just pause, take one breath. And that, again, it calms it calms our brains. It's actually physiological, as we know. But what it does then is that we can respond in a way that we choose. And that can be like, oh, that just hit me. That hit me pretty hard. Let me take a moment. I can even say that. I, I, I actually recommend sometimes in certain situations that you are honest and you say, that just hit me kind of hard. I need a moment to think about it. What does that do is First of all, it shows your humanity. It gives you the time to calm down and gather your thoughts. But it also lets the other person have some empathy for you because they may not, they might not have intended to, to hurt you in any way or to, hit, to have something that hit you hard. And now they know, oh, what I said just had an impact that maybe I didn't intend. And it just strengthens, strengthens the connection between fellow human beings. And then it gives you the opportunity to respond in a thoughtful way, asking a curious follow-up question, saying, I need a little more time, or maybe it was enough that maybe that breath and that pause gave you enough time to just respond with a calm answer. But what I have found personally is that if I don't take that time, I usually respond harshly, even tone of voice, body language, et cetera. And if I take that pause, my whole body just calms, my voice lowers, my pitch lowers and I can have a, a calm reaction, response rather, and the other person can then calmly engage with me and we go forward in a really productive way. Yeah, I think I think not missing this, this whole idea that, because what you just said, in my mind, equates to 7% of all communication is through our words. Everything else is through our body language, our facial expressions, our tone of voice, our pitch, our cadence, all of those different things. And so we might be proud of ourselves for saying the right thing in the situation, but if we're not in complete control of every other communication indicator, we've sent a mixed message and people know. And it's very damaging. And as a leader, what we do is we put up a giant stop sign. We might as well carry a stop sign with us and put it up and say, stop, this honest feedback, this honest communication, your real input or opinion actually wasn't welcome. It's not safe to share that here with me. And it, it's really, really a damaging, damaging thing. I think, you know, name it to tame it, right? So we take and name the emotion we're feeling, push it to the prefrontal cortex, the power of the pause, and then breathing. Our breathing controls 
um, controls our emotion. I know we learned that when I was on SWAT, when we were doing crisis negotiation, we were in high stress situations and we got to deescalate somebody that's way up here. The ability to like have the extreme poker face, remain empathetic and kind and smile and communicate while inside you are reacting because you're a human being. For the purposes of time and the idea that I think we're going to be able to talk about each of these a little bit. Um, However, they, yeah. be, be, before we move on, I, yeah. I have to speak quickly with me that I hope I don't send often emails to you which are triggering you into into <laughs> into difficult reactions. Yes. Yeah. yeah. That was a joke. That was a yeah. joke. You, ne you never trigger <laughs> me. Never, never communicate anything that could be negative by email. Very, very funny. So embrace risk or failure. I believe our relationship with failure is one of the most important relationships we will ever have. So, uh, Carolyn, could you talk about some of the key components? Why is it important to embrace risk and failure when we're creating the highest levels of psychological safety? Yeah, it's absolutely crucial um, at the heart of what teams are doing, how they do deal with failure and um, with situations when things don't go as planned. And I mean, they they always don't go as planned, right? And I think, I, I mean, I'm a scientist by background. I think it would be really productive if we all adopted a little bit more a scientific approach to failure. So failure is just data, right? And we can extract what we could learn out of the failure and try to um, kind of get rid of this the feelings of guilt and shame and so on. So failure, risking, how to deal with risk and failure is also something where it's absolutely essential to see the leader role modeling the behavior. It's not going to work if the leader says, um, let's, let's embrace risk and failure, and he or she herself is not admitting mistakes, for example. So one of the really most powerful things a leader can do is really go ahead as the first one sharing a mistake a failure and admit oh here i was wrong i took the wrong decision or whatever it is i have now new data i have feedback and now i see things differently this is also maybe linked to this and um, what we discussed before changing your opinion you, you've received new data and it would be ridiculous not to adopt, right? So um, the failure is just that, new data, and you can extract what, um, what we can learn out of it. And um, as a leader, you play a crucial role to get rid of guilt and shame. And admitting own mistakes is one powerful thing. Another powerful thing about you could do as a leader, if the team is doing something new, maybe, I don't know, an innovative project, something which all of them have never tried or something, to really set explicit expectations and say, this is new to all of us. And I expect us to fail. So it's not, failure is not something which can be avoided. Failure is really part of success and success is just a little bit further down the road. Um, and we, we really have to change deeply our attitude so that we are not hiding mistakes, but instead kind of proudly present our mistakes and, and, and share what we can learn and have an open discussion about that. 
a couple of really powerful strategies that leaders can do right now. And when we're vulnerable, when we admit our mistakes, admit what we learned, you know, share that with our team members, it doesn't only create psychological safety and the ability for our team members to do that. It accelerates trust between the team members and the leader. I know trust is an essential element of psychological safety, but we can't miss like the deposit we place in our own account by being human, being willing to admit our mistakes, share what our lessons are, and then be encouraging. Manette, is there anything that you want to add to embrace risk and failure before we dive into design inclusive rituals? Um, no, maybe just, I'm just going to add on a tiny thing, a nuance to what Caroline just said, which is that uh, we're not suggesting that you want to have enormous failures, right? <laughs> like that's what we're looking for. I think the nuance is that if we can talk about failure openly, we will have smaller failures that we learn from and will maybe even prevent a catastrophic failure. And I've I've seen that in the software industry in teams where you actually can openly discuss what's not going well you're more likely to be able to fix that before the release goes out to the public. But in teams where people don't talk openly about the problems, you're probably going to put out a terrible release that then you have to recover from. And that's not just the software industry. That's any industry. That's the one that I know most. So really, by by discussing things that are going badly, even if you want to talk about it that way, as opposed to failure, that can prevent some of the bigger things that might that might get you if you are not open to talking about it as you go. So one of the things we did, and it's number five in uh, strategies under embrace risk and failure, is celebrate continuous learning, doing the postmortem. And so when we would go yeah. out on a SWAT mission, have a critical incident, we would come back in. And the expectation was that you were direct and honest and loving in the feedback that you gave. But we had to give it because, you know, the, yes. the SWAT commander can only see so much about what happened and it's life or death. But even though it isn't life or death in the everyday industry and, and business, being able to have this postmortem is so important. Can you just talk about that really quick? Yeah, I'm happy to. In fact, I just sent some links to Caroline today. There's some really good online resources if anyone wants to learn about this. So one of the things that we have in our book is creating the the blameless postmortem and running those regularly. So it's not just for you know the SWAT a SWAT team. It's not just for a software team, which is where blameless postmortems were sort of developed. But it's to go back after something happens and to say we are not shaming, we are not blaming, we are not putting pointing fingers. But there's a structure for this. We want to see what happened what went wrong what did we miss what can we do differently going forward what are we going to document that wasn't documented and then we're going to do better going forward and so um, if anyone really wants to learn more about this I, I found two excellent resources online so Atlassian is a software company and they have a blog post called how to run a blameless postmortem and it's great and then there's another one by Smartsheet where they actually have a kind of a template which I thought was really useful so I think those are things that can be taken from the software industry and moved into any industry is like, what can we learn here? And how can we do this in a way that people are not embarrassed and feel like they're losing their job, but instead that we can all do better together as a team and have better outcomes going forward. That's it. And when everybody's invested in the vision and they're united towards that common purpose and the difference in impact, that's what it's all about. Nobody want, nobody wakes up and says, I hope to be average or mediocre today, right? Like everybody shows up trying to do their best job, but we can't without that. And Manette, if after the episode, if you could send me those links. Um, I will do that. And other resources you guys have, I will put them in the podcast description so people can just click on those right from the podcast description. 
and go directly to it. All right, going to wrap it up with design inclusive rituals. Um, and while she's writing that down, uh, Carolyn, why is it important to design inclusive rituals? Yeah, it's absolutely important um, that you make sure that in your team, you really hear every voice, right? And and um, one of the focuses in, in this chapter is about meetings, because meetings make up so much of our working day. And meetings are the situation where we often don't have inclusion. So what we often see in meetings that some people do all the talking and they take up a lot of airtime and some people stay quiet and they, for whatever reason, don't feel comfortable to share and to really be open and contribute. And if we really want to create psychological safety, if we really want to be inclusive, we need to change the way we run our meetings. We really have to make sure that everyone feels invited and everyone is heard. So one of the things we propose is to really have all the meeting facilitated. What we propose is to have an inclusion booster, we call it. Love that. Um, as someone <laughs> who has the role to make sure everyone is heard, everyone can contribute. Monitoring airtime, for example, and also a no interruption rule. That's also something which is common practice that we see a lot of interruptions happening in meetings. Mm -hmm. And we see that um, some people tend to be more interrupt interrupted more, more, more um, frequently than others. So this is um, really crucial um, on a behavioral um, level, kind of really crucial to fix that and upgrade your meetings in a way that everyone really can contribute. Otherwise, you can't really benefit from the talent you have. I mean, teams and companies, companies really put a lot of effort into hiring diverse teams, right? Because diversity, it turns out diversity is really much more productive. However, now we have the diverse teams, the diverse talent in the companies, but you are not making sure that you get the benefit out of it because you don't create the environment and the processes and the meetings where the talent can really fully contribute. And that's what we need to change. And we offer ideas in, in this chapter, like inclusion booster and no interruption rule. Awesome. Awesome. Manette, do you want to build on that at all as we work towards the close here? Yeah, and of course, this is inclusion is my my main topic in my work, and so I could talk forever about this. So I'm going to be very as quick as I I can. I just want to say that there are a lot of techniques we could use. We don't explore them all in the book. There there's lots to be done, but I think the most important thing that we have to remind everyone of, and leaders need to know this, is that every single human being needs to feel a sense of belonging and inclusion. And when they show up at work and they feel that. They're not listened to. They're not valued. They are not, they, you really don't want their point of view. You want them to agree with everyone else. They're just suffering. I mean, we are actually suffering at work and there's so much more suffering than we know. And, you know, back to the brain, I think it's important to realize that exclusion to our brain is pain. 
And you, you may know about this research, the neuroscience research that they've done, that our brains do not distinguish between physical pain and social pain and being excluded and feeling that we don't belong and we're not valued. We're experiencing pain at work. So we're giving you some ideas for how to run more inclusive meetings, but this goes across everything at work that you're a lot of people are suffering. They're not able to fully contribute. You are not benefiting as an organization. And so it really behooves every leader to do everything they can to make people feel included, make people feel that they're valued and respected. Absolutely. You know, the the, the idea that fitting in is surviving, belonging is thriving. Yeah. And all the research and work that went into the seven pillars of ownership around the great resignation, quiet quitting, the, the two most important factors driving those things is a feeling of belonging, which is the number one driving of meaning in human beings, which I believe you just said, and purpose. The, the work we do matters. What we do and contribute to matters. And so as leaders to be intentional about creating these environments. Now, like somebody might listen to this and say, you know, if people are suffering, you know, they need to get over, right? These hardcore leaders, right? If people are, so, okay, maybe you don't care about that, but what you should care about is people are bringing 10% of themselves to work. If they choose to stay, people are leaving when they leave, they're loud, right? They're loud. Like you go to a restaurant and get a bad meal or bad service. You're loud about that. You're not as loud about it when it was great. Um, and it's going to affect your retention. It's going to affect your recruitment. And now more than ever with this war on talent, that's huge. The amount of money it costs to hire, to retrain, to lose your talent. When we had just been intentional about including people, not only about being diverse, not just inviting people to the dance, actually asking them to dance, creating these psychological safe environments through these five plays that are absolutely gold, you will take your organization to another level in your culture and morale and engagement and ownership, but in retention about them being your best recruiters and bottom line profit. Like what we're talking about here isn't soft, it's smart and it drops the bottom line profit. So the, the book we're talking about today, the Psychological Safety Playbook, Five Plays to Lead More Powerfully by Being More Human, was released on February the 26th. This book is out. You can buy it now. I'll link it in the podcast description. I'm telling you, I got ADHD. I got a lot of books. I have trouble reading them through and through. I made it through this book so quick because of the way it's laid out, so many actionable takeaways. I was able to create two pages of notes and go-bys for this conversation. I've seen a lot on psychological safety. This is the best of the best. Manette, you have another book coming out, Boldly Inclusive Leader. After hearing you speak and, and meeting you and Carolyn, I'm excited about that. Can you tell our listeners when that comes out and just give like a short preview Oh, thank you. Sure. It comes out on August 8th of this year. So just a little over three months from now. It is a longer book. I'm sorry to say it's a longer book, but it's not endlessly long. And it is about really what it takes to be an inclusive leader from, from A to Z, I'd say. And psychological safety has a whole chapter in there because that is so important. And I think that psychological safety is foundational to inclusion. And the book takes you through your own behaviors as a leader and because your own self-awareness and behavior is critical, but it also goes into inclusive team dynamics and what it means to lead an inclusive team and how everyone plays a role. So it's one of those books, much like the playbook in that there's not a quick switch, but the small behavioral changes can make a huge impact. And I, I try to make it as actionable as possible as well. So can excited. I add to that, Danny? <laughs> I, I had the pleasure to, to be an early reader 
um, of uh, Boldly Inclusive Leader. And it's really what I appreciated um, was it's, it's, it's really full of personal stories and experiences. So it's not an academic textbook. And um, Minette is writing it um, knowing both sides. So know, knowing as a leader how hard it is um, and challenging to include everyone. And, and um, she also had this experience of feeling not included as a woman in, in tech um, with unlikely career coming out of arts. Um, so this makes it so valuable because it's not, I don't know, invented in HR with wishful thinking. It's really down-to-earth advice from someone who really knows both sides. Awesome. I appreciate you adding that. So today we've gone through uh, the psychological safety playbook, and it's really five plays. I love the analogy to that, to the sports team. Uh, play one, communicate courageously. Uh, get out of our comfort zone. Embrace discomfort. Leaders need to be vulnerable, authentic. They need to laugh and have fun. They need to be human. They've got to model these behaviors. And when they do, when people can can communicate courageously, they feel valued. They feel welcome. They feel like they belong. Number two, master the art of listening. Listening really is an art. Yes, we need to teach people how to listen. You know, skills including curiosity, empathy, humility, looking for meaning. Uh, beyond the words, understanding the emotion, driving it, being present, clarifying, understanding, being aware of our blind spots and being aware of our bias. Uh, manage your reactions. You got to have high levels of EQ and we're triggered. Uh, Stephen uh, Gowers, a, a, a mentor of mine, somebody I've really enjoyed. He says, as leaders, our microphone is always on. And those aren't just the words coming out of our mouth. That's our body language. That's our energy. And our reactions can put up a giant stop sign to people, destroy psychological safety in an instant, destroy people's willingness to share, embrace risk and failure. Our relationship with failure is one of the most important relationships we'll ever have. Um, it goes against our natural wiring. But you know what I found from reading their book is we can actually rewire this fear of risk. And as leaders, we got to step up. We've got to be able to share a time when we came up short or if currently we're working on something and we failed or we let somebody down and what we learned from that, we can change the environment from learning or from blaming to learning. Uh, again, fueled by curiosity and the importance of growth first fixed mindset, which we've talked about before on the podcast. And then finally, design inclusive rituals right around meetings. I believe uh, and the philosophy of leaders speak last, especially in meetings. When we put out a problem and then we say what the solution is or we think what's best, who's going to speak up and go against that? But one of the things I, I love the most is having this inclusion booster, somebody that you've selected, whether it be the leader or somebody else, to really make sure other people are included, that nobody speaks twice before everybody speaks once, that nobody is interrupted, and that we express gratitude uh, for people who challenge thinking, who are willing to take risks and who are willing to give us a different viewpoint. Uh, Carolyn, Manette, thank you so much for joining us on the Leadership Excellence Podcast. Thank you Thanks so much for having for us. invited us. Yeah, to our listeners, if you enjoyed this episode, um, look within it. There's going to be plenty of links to go to for additional resources. Remember to hit that uh, like button, uh, give us a five-star rating, uh, leave us a review. It helps us reach more people organically. And remember, always be committed to excellence.